This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films either in theaters or on streaming platforms and compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I have a film blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find that at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this week we watched the whacked out unbelievable musical Annette from uh, French iconoclast Leos Carax and uh, we're also going to take a look at the films of its star Marion Cotillard right after this. So, uh, yeah, here we are again, Lends Me Your Ears, talking about film and uh, and stuff that we're catching. Some of it we've seen before, some of it we've never watched. And watching Annette, it made us realize, I guess, that Marion Cotillard has had a terrific career. I mean, we've seen her in a variety of films, in Hollywood and uh, in French language films, and she is just an incredible talent. So it's like, why not watch more of her films, stuff that we hadn't caught before? It seemed like a good idea, and I'm really glad we did. Um, I mean, what a career. Apparently, she's also a singer back in France, which doesn't surprise me, given no, how, many, how many films she sings in. Um, she was in A Very Long Engagement and Big Fish, which are two films that uh, she you know, made an impression in. But it wasn't until La Vie en Rose where I think I really noticed her. Of course, La Vie en Rose, um, Edith Piaf biopic, one of the one of those examples, we've talked about musical biopics and how they work so much better if they focus on a limited period of time in the in the singer's life, where this one broke that rule and it still worked. And it's like one of those few examples of a film that does that. And we, we talked about Loving Yours. It's incredible um, when we did our musical biopics. Well, if you're if you're a French filmmaker and you make a bad film about Edith Piaf, you're going to be running out of town on a rail. So <laughs> yeah. you, you definitely don't want to get that wrong. That's right. And when Imagine the pressure on this young actor when she had to to embody her, uh, and she did such a great job. She won an Oscar for that remarkable role. And since then, she's been in amazing films as different as uh, Michael Mann's Public Enemies, uh, of course, Christopher Nolan's Inception, um, Contagion, you know, the Steven Soderbergh, very creepy pandemic movie, and uh, also Rust and Bone, which we won't, I don't think we'll be talking about, but it's it's a great film, very much worth seeing uh, as well. So that's And, a- and Anchorman 2, I oh, think we should point right. out that she's also in the Anchorman 2, the legend continues. She plays a Canadian uh, newscaster, I believe. There you go. There you go. All right. That's good to keep in mind. So let's launch into Annette. Now on Amazon Prime, uh, directed, as you mentioned, by Leos Carrix, uh, written by Ron and Russell Mail, with music by Sparks. Sparks, of course, being Ron and Russell, who are having kind of a second, this new chapter in their career, what with the recent uh, documentary about, about them. We've spoken about that. Uh, now, in the film, um, Marion Cotillard is the beauty, an opera singer, Anne Defrenu. She goes on stage to sing, to die, to save her audience. And apparently she's very fond of apples because we see her eating apples a lot in the movie. <laughs> yes. uh, and ne- meanwhile, 
He is the beast, Adam Driver, the bastard, the caustic comedian, the ape of God. Henry McHenry is his name, and he goes on stage in a bathrobe like a prize fighter. He is, he's, you can just feel the energy, the sort of anger and the intensity from him. And somehow these two click and they fall in love and they fall deeply in love. We know because they sing to each other. This is a musical uh, for those who don't know. And uh, Carrex is a, a crazy uh, iconoclastic filmmaker. The only other film of his I've seen is Holy Motors and it is bonkers. In some ways, in fact, I think Annette is less opaque and peculiar than Holy Motors, which really had only the loosest relationship to like a narrative th- plot thrust. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to watch them in tandem I, I recommend if you haven't seen holy motors uh it, it you know annette is, is definitely over the top and takes you in some really odd directions but not nearly as odd as where holy motors goes it you know it it, it makes a little more linear sense but it's they they're interesting contrasting pictures to watch maybe not as a double feature that might be a bit much but but maybe within a few days of each other just to get a <laughs> grasp on carax's uh style and approach to storytelling yeah, I mean, I haven't done that, but maybe I should. Uh, incidentally, one of the things I learned about uh, Marion Cotillard, thanks to, you know, the wonders of the Wikipedia, is that uh, along with her, you know, singing career and her musical experience, she wrote music with Hoxley Workman when he was in Los Angeles working on Between the Beautifuls, his, I think, maybe third or fourth record. Uh, they were both in L.A. at the t- same time. I guess they met and both being musical, they they wrote songs together. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah, isn't that a weird that would connection? Be a great coincidence. I would love, I mean, I should go back and listen to that record to see what, if her, she's credited on it somewhere. Um, but yeah, that is really cool. Anyway, so um, back to Annette. Uh, <laughs> the movie really starts with a bang. Writers and composers, the male brothers, launch into the opening song in a Los Angeles studio, joined by Cotillard and Driver and Simon Helberg, singing along as they march outside into the street. It feels a little bit like the performers are all sort of appearing as themselves before they actually go on stage and the rest of the movie inhabit these characters. Um, And so, yes, Anne and Henry, Cotillard and Driver, they are the couple. They're very much in love. And they get married. She gets pregnant. Annette, of the the title, is their baby, who also happens to be a Chucky-level animatronic (laughs) doll, which I found incredibly creepy, but uh, even more so when Annette begins to sing as a as a toddler and that's where the sort of the strangeness starts if it hadn't already it really starts there uh yeah and it's um it is something this film i i found myself at first really kind of like aghast and i wouldn't say upset but really struggling to kind of piece it together but once i plugged into the sort of uh, the vibe of the film, I really started to enjoy it. And and when I realized the kind of, I mean, it's got some very serious, dramatic, almost operatic moments, but it's also this 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 wit and um and you know it doesn't take itself entirely seriously which is a real relief given how uh bizarre it is yeah i love that it starts with that pretty much an overture uh with uh, with uh sparks setting the scene in the studio and then marching onto the street uh that kind of lets you know right off the bat what you're in for this is not your typical movie let alone your typical musical and it it just kind of breaks all the rules of of character of storytelling of 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 the approach um to telling a very unusual story and i I should note that in holy motors um the main character mr levant who is driving around paris in the back of a limo and doing all these strange things uh 
which may or may not be performance art. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, at one point, he's driving around uh, listening to Sparks. Oh, in, interesting. In, in Holy Motors. So it's kind of a weird um, sort of presaging of Annette, I guess, in a way, or of that uh, of that future collaboration. And uh, it's 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 kind of like the anti-La La Land. Yeah, absolutely. Annette. I you totally know, agree. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's not really an homage to classic musicals uh, or anything like that. It's 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 meant to kind of you know completely take the form of the movie musical and upend it and uh while still being as kind of illogical and silly as classic musicals can be um you know when you've got people breaking out into song you know suddenly and 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 so on some people have a hard time with that if it's not something they grew up with or whatever it's it's hard to to rationalize why are these people singing why don't they just tell the story um uh, I have no problem with that. I love uh, musicals, classic or, or otherwise. And uh, and I liked how this one kind of took your expectations of what a musical should be and kind of upended them um, in so many different ways, uh, you know, in terms of visuals, in terms of character behavior, um, in terms of some of the cliches you often get in musicals and, 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 and having a lot of familiar kind of story points um, to, to, kind of guide you along and then completely uh pull the rug out from under you i mean it's it's basically a star is born mm-hmm. um yeah for sure but with a ghost story and a bit of pinocchio <laughs> thrown in <laughs> that's right that's that's about right I, I i can see all those things in this film and i i love the uh the self-aware humor the sort of showbiz magic and and definitely the celebrity skewering right they're they're making fun of the whole celebrity uh, tabloid culture with these characters and uh and there's even a little bit of me too there in the uh, in 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 when um we discover something about uh, Adam Driver's character that uh, he may have uh, been you know i mean there's evidence to say that some some women come forward with accusations and he and it doesn't really become a big part of the film which sort of surprised me i thought oh this is the direction it's going but it's just it it's sort of part of his downfall from celebrity success while his partner continues to have success in that kind of competitive nature. And I mean, all the the anger that Driver has in his body is on display in this film in a way that, um, I mean, he's done that before. I've certainly seen that kind of frustration in, in you know, in his work in like girls and that kind of thing. But, but boy, is he, uh, is this a physical performance from him? I mean, he spends half the movie with his shirt off, but it's like, <laughs> you can just see this sort of sinewy kind of coiledness of him in a way that uh, maybe we haven't seen before. And it's, it's terrific. Like, it's so good to see him like this. Yeah, and I, you know, from what I'm reading online, there's a, been a lot of division uh, for this film amongst people. Some people, it, it seems to be a love it or hate it kind of film, and I guess, uh, I guess you can't really can't walk down the middle and say it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you either have to kind of give yourself over to the world that this movie presents, or just kind of scratch your head and go, I don't get it. <laughs> it's not for me. Uh, and and there's and I can see all the reasons why it wouldn't work for someone. I mean, in terms of the the connection between uh, Driver and Codyard's characters it it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense you just kind of have to accept it for for what it is and 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 also whether or not like why why would Driver be a hugely successful you know comedian slash performance artist with his the material that he has in this film yeah it's that's not fair great. it isn't great you're right um, and and that's fine because it doesn't have to be you know you just have to kind of accept that he's got a following given that you know, there are other similar uh, performers out there doing similar kind of shtick. Although 
when I watched, and I think I mentioned this to you, uh, that it reminded me of like Lenny Bruce when he was going off the rails. Uh-huh. And there's a performance film of him where he's kind of half in the bag and he's wearing a trench coat on stage and, and just talking about his, his legal problems. And that's kind of what <laughs> Driver's Act is here. Like the, the fact that he's got this big production with smoke and he's booked a theater and, and all this stuff. And then he comes out and just kind of rambles and it all seems very... Um, you know, off the top of his dome when he's got backup singers and everything like that. You kind of, you kind of expect more of a production from this comedy act of his. And, and but, you know, I, I guess Carrick just wasn't that interested in, in showing that. And, and uh, you know, maybe making him too good of a comic would have distracted from, from the film. It certainly explains why he would fall out of favor so quickly. So, um, again, that's something that I was able to accept. Other people, I guess, have not been able to take that so well. But, uh, you know, this is this is a film, you know, you have to suspend some of that uh, disbelief. And yeah, well, you're not looking for realism No, here. certainly not. Certainly not. It is a musical. I mean, part of those, those performances, in quotes, that he does on stage, he's talking to the audience, and they're singing back to him. And so there's this ongoing call and response kind of thing happening. And, I mean, his character is just, it's rife and, crippled with self-loathing and a capacity for violence that he never really gets over. And that's, of course, destroys his relationship with his wife. Um, you know, and Cote Yard, we're, I mean, this show is devoted to her. And she is also remarkable in the film. But uh, in some ways, you know, in he is the flashier part. She sort of steps back in, in some regards um, as she's dealing with him and, and his problems. Um, but boy, uh, I, I, I was one. I clearly I, I liked it a lot. I really liked how it ended, too. I, it's never dull. And it, it finds a way to uh, to tell its story in the ending that I, I really enjoyed. Um, it just has this. And I wrote this in my blog uh, entry about the film, it has a confidence and ingenuity, and it, it's partly the, the Sparks guys, and it's partly Carax, I think, where it it's the kind of movie that thinks all movies should be like this, you know? It's so original, and yet it has this kind of, like, strut about it that it's like, well, of course this is the way it should be told. This is exactly what we always planned, and more movies should be like this. You know, it's that kind of thing. I, I, and I admired that. And, and there is a kind of a coda uh, during the end credits, but I think doesn't start until partway through the credits. So it's, and again, another film you need to stay all the way to the end for because you'll miss kind of the, we, we got an overture at the start of the film and we get kind of the opposite of that at the end, uh, kind of the, the, well, the final, yeah, the final coda, I guess, for the, for the film. And that's, uh, that's, that's worth sticking around for as well. So don't, <laughs> don't turn it off as soon as the credits start rolling. Um, and, and yeah, we, maybe we should talk a little bit more about Cody R's performance. I, I thought, She's great. She's, I mean, she she gets to play this very strong uh, performer who still has these insecurities, and I and I guess, you know, I guess that's what connects her to um, Henry McHenry. That that you know he's he's a performer like her. He kind of understands her world to a certain degree, but he's not of her world, so that she doesn't, you know. There's enough of a divide that they can be close without him impinging on what she does and vice versa, you know, at least at the start, you know, when they're, when they're truly, you know, deeply in love and before uh, things start to go haywire. And, um, you know, she, she's wonderful in that role. And then, of course, we get see a very different version of her character later in the film. I don't even want to – I don't know if you can spoil a movie like this, but, you know, she becomes uh, a symbol of something else entirely um, – uh, in the second half of the film, and 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 that's very effective as well, and 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 she becomes kind of a very memorable uh, image, I guess, for lack of a better word, that uh, that gets used to great effect uh, 
to to kind of haunt Adam Driver and as uh, as he uh, goes into his spiral. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it's it's interesting. It's almost like. It's, I mean, she's the same character, but it's almost kind of a dual role. And I found that pretty fascinating as well. Yeah, but you know what? This is one of the things I learned, I guess, from watching a bunch of her movies back to back to back is, is that you plug her in any any kind of part and she just makes it her own and she does something special with it. And that's clearly a sign of her huge talent, but also her just like versatility and her comfort trying on different sort of masks. Uh, and, you know, she certainly does that in Annette. And we went back to try to find that's- an early role for her because because as i was saying you know i remember her from a few of these films in the early 2000s but she's been working in french film since the late 90s and uh we found something called a woman in danger which was on a streaming was it canopy or I was found, it yeah, was hoopla uh no i found it on canopy yeah which is the, the free service you can get through through your library card uh the canopy and hoopla are the two and we found uh quite a few of her films on both of those services. And they're worth, uh, you can either watch them on a laptop or I I plugged them into my Roku and, and they're both on there. And if you have one of those streaming devices, I'm sure you can find it without too much difficulty. And it's great. It's free. You get, uh, I think, five titles per month um, on each uh, platform. And if you have a friend or if you live with somebody who's got a library card, you can also plug in their account when you've used up your five. The selection is pretty amazing. And Canopy has a lot of Criterion titles as well. There's, there's an amazing array of stuff on there. And, uh, and so canopy with a K canopy with a K incidentally. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, so we just plugged in Marion Cotillard and up came a bunch of titles and including this one, which, um, cause there's a number of films where she plays a supporting role. She, she doesn't seem to be too fussed about whether she's a lead or, you know, or a strong supporting role. And, um, you know, we want to find like an early lead performance. And this clearly was, was her front and center, um, in this, uh, basically, uh, a Hitchcockian thriller, as we uh-huh. often come across uh, as we're going through films. Uh, and this is 20 years ago. This is 2001, um, you know, which is mind-blowing to think, uh, you know, the kind of career she's had over the past 20 years and how strong uh, strong it, it, it has stayed or has become. And and this is um, – yeah, it's it's basically I – mean, it's basically a TV movie. It's it's It was I kind of, kind of – made as part of a series of, I guess, suspense films for French television. But then uh, maybe because of her later fame, it was kind of plucked from the lineup and and marketed at least in a video streaming kind of way as a standalone uh, project. And it, it still works that way. It's not really connected to a, a longer storyline. But um, basically she plays a woman who has a one-night stand and then uh, the next day she finds out that the, the guy she thought she spent the night with uh, has been murdered. And she is the likely suspect because she, of course, discovers the body and then runs away from the scene, which, of course, immediately makes her public enemy number one. Uh, and it's uh, filmed in the south of France. I think, do we say it was Nice? Nice, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's fairly cheaply made, but when you're filming on the streets of Nice, everything looks great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, so she's, so she's basically caught up in a plot, uh, to, to murder somebody else, uh, and, uh, you know, unknowingly, and she has to put all these pieces together, but she's also, um, you know, she's, she's got her husband who's a lawyer, uh, who appears to be maybe not working in her favor. And then, uh, her husband has an issue with the cop who's investigating the murder. Apparently he, uh, uh, was able to let a guy suspected of killing the cop's daughter go free and so there's a lot of tangled webs happening it's 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 pretty multi-layered and uh and uh, and Cotillard does a really good job of kind of 
making her character work and her desperation and her, her her sense of panic. And she doesn't always make the right decisions. In fact, she frequently makes the wrong decisions. But at least the film seems to make it plausible that in the heat of the moment, she might act rashly or do the wrong thing. And and uh, and it's kind of interesting to see her uh, at such an early stage in her career in, in a fairly boilerplate thriller, but at least uh, bringing some life to to an, what could have been an otherwise mundane character. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I actually quite enjoyed this, despite what you say is that it's a, it's a fairly uh, straightforward boilerplate uh, you know, a Hitchcock thriller. I thought the the plot elements were handled really well. You didn't mention that the man who she has sex with that night, who dies, is is the is a client of her husband, her her oh, yeah, lawyer yeah. husband. So that's one another part of this tapestry of of odd, you know, bizarre things going on. Well, I'm trying um, not to give too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, I think that's fine. All, all of the stuff that you've mentioned and I've mentioned, you learn in the first 20 minutes. Yeah, pretty much. So, so that's what I always figure is like the spoiler territory. If you can tell that much to get people interested. Um, yeah, it, there are a few implausibilities, but as you say, it's not so broad that the whole thing gets capsized. I really like the Riviera locations. And young Cotillard, who must have been around in her mid-20s at this point, is terrific. She's she's um, she's like a fully formed actor. All the emotional control that she's always shown in all her roles, she has here. Uh, completely convincing in this part and uh, really, really likable, too. Um, it, it's 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 a lot of fun for, for something which, uh, you know, is is a little disposable if you want to be honest about it. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. Today we're looking at the career of actor Marion Cotillard, uh, who most recently appears in the whacked out musical Annette, which we both uh, enjoyed uh, just for its sheer audacity and then visual visual treats. Uh, and uh, of course, Cody Art is a big part of the success of that film, always believable. And uh, the same goes for this next film that we're going to look at called The Immigrant. Now, I don't know how much attention this got at the time, um, but uh, I, I feel like it kind of sank out of view, uh, which is odd considering it was uh, sort of the, the kind of a dream project for writer-director James Gray, who uh, basically wanted to make this film based loosely on the life, I think, of his uh, Russian immigrant uh, grandparents. And, uh, you know, at that point, he'd made some some well-known dramas like We Own the Night and The Yards and Little Odessa. And has since gone on to... Uh, sort of much greater acclaim with films like The Lost City of Z and the uh, the science fiction epic Ad Astra with Brad Pitt. Uh, and here he's in historical drama mode. It's it's kind of like a mix of The Godfather and 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 maybe some of those um, movies like Paley the Conqueror and 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 those kind of uh, historical dramas with with uh, Max von Sydow, very serious and and uh, you know historically weighty kind of stories. And and here we have uh, Marion Cotillard playing uh, a young Polish woman who comes to America uh, with the hope of uh, finding a new life with her sister. And uh, they're supposed to stay with an aunt and uncle in New York City. And uh, everything comes to a crashing halt when they get to Ellis Island. And they're told that uh, they're told that uh, the, they're their families, their aunt and uncle's address doesn't even exist, and that uh, the sister has uh, tuberculosis and must go into quarantine immediately. And uh, also, um, there seems to be a bit of a scam running because because uh, Eva falls into the hands of Bruno Weiss, played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, who uh, who's previously worked. I think he's in We Own the Night. Previously worked with Gray, uh, and here he plays uh, Bruno, who's this kind of. You know, it takes us a little while to figure out what he's up to and why he's being so nice to her. He, he, we find out he's kind of like the the 
the pitch man at this burlesque house, which is also a quasi bordello. And he's, uh, he's clearly trying to, um, uh, you know, induct Eva into, uh, into his uh, stable as it were. And it's, uh, you know, so we, we kind of get this, uh, you know, innocence lost in the big city kind of story. Uh, and, the, the kind of the feeling of corruption and, and the feeling of desperation of these people coming to a new world, trying to make a new life uh, when there are people just waiting to pounce and prey upon them is, is very, uh, is very tangible. And it's, it's, it's quite vividly filmed. It's, it's interesting. It starts out very sepia toned and gradually the, the picture kind of gets clearer and more either colorful or more focused as it goes along. And it's uh, James Gray has, is really fully in charge of this story. He's obviously got his heart into it as it's, like I say, based loosely on his own, uh, his own family history. And uh, I think he gets some great performances out of uh, Phoenix and, uh, and Cody Yard. Also, uh, also along for the ride is Jeremy Renner, who shows up as Bruno's cousin, who's also a magician who uh, wants to take Eva away from all this and away from his, uh, his scheming cousin. And then that gives us kind of the romantic triangle where that uh, becomes the big conflict uh, later in the film. And, and I quite enjoyed this film. It's, 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 uh, it's very well portrayed and the characters are very vivid and, um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I thought, uh, thought it was a fine entry for her. Yeah, I felt the same way. Uh, I certainly enjoyed that sort of sepia-toned uh, vision of New York of, uh, you know, the early 20s. Um, I, I thought the casting was terrific. James Gray, of course, Two Lovers is a film of his I really like uh, that also starred Joaquin Phoenix. And, of course, I've liked the stuff he's done since. Um, but this is a really a Marion Cotillard. It's it's like she gives a hell of a performance here. She, she is playing a, a Polish woman. And, of course, she's French, so she has to speak English in Polish in a Polish accent and then has to speak Polish. And, of course, my Polish is not all that great. So I'm not sure how convincing she is in that language. But, boy, is she something to see. And she, she – conveys the suffering and the uncertainty and the fear so well, you really can't help but feel incredibly sympathetic for what she's going through. Um, as you say, she's separated from her sister, played by Angela Serafian, who I recently saw. She's in Reminiscence, a film that's in cinemas right now, uh, who's great in that and very good in this, although she's not in it very much. But she gets quarantined so due to her having tuberculosis. So uh, Iwa has to, you know, the, the whole film is her trying to reconnect with her sister and trying to save her and make a better life. You and she goes through so much. You start to wonder whether or not they would have been better off staying in Poland, given yes, how given how difficult life is. Yeah, here. when they when they say they're going to deport her, uh, you kind of go hmm. But uh, I think she does say that she saw was it her own parents or her grandparents were beheaded by the Russians. So yeah, so that's that's pretty grim. That's a pretty good motivator. Uh, and she does get some. I mean, she doesn't say so much. A lot of the film just is her silent, watching things go on around her. But she does occasionally get a hell of a line when when things start going badly for her. When she starts to realize that uh, Bruno is basically wants to pimp her out, she says, "I like money." but I hate you and I hate myself. Like it's just so clear where she's at and how she's having to compromise her values in order to just survive. Um, And, you know, Phoenix is so good at creating a character that's insecure and emotionally stunted. Like you see right through his, his, I mean, he's got a lot of measured manners at the beginning and you're like, oh, maybe he is a kind person, but he becomes so loathsome 
for me, it almost capsized the movie. I was like, oh, I don't even want to spend any more time with this guy. He's so awful. Uh, Renner is more appealing, which is saying something because Jeremy (laughs) Renner isn't always so appealing. But, um, you know, as an alternative, he's not really offering a lot more. And I, I, you know, you feel there are times when you you feel as trapped as she does between these two, like, uh, you know, a rock and a hard place. Uh, Not much that that she can do. Uh, But I really did like the film. I think I think it's uh, and I think it's worth seeing if not for the production values, it's and the performances, it's especially for her because she's just she's magnetic in it. Well, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, Gray, uh, I, I read in, in some of the notes on this film that uh, he really wanted to find somebody who had kind of a Lillian Gish, maybe not Mary Pickford, but like a Lillian Gish silent film actor quality. And there just isn't a lot of that around these days. I mean, why would there be, I suppose? But, but you know, someone who, who can express so much with uh, with so little dialogue. And, and Cody Art is definitely in that realm. And we, we've seen her do that. Uh, I mean, in the net, she says a lot in the scenes where she doesn't have dialogue or if she's just singing or, or what have you. Like, it's she has this range of facial expression that is so controlled and so uh, sympathetic and appealing that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I don't want to call it a bag of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> to downplay it, but but she she really can do a lot without any dialogue at all, and we see that in in so many of these films. And uh, this film certainly makes good use of that. And it seems like um, she and Gray had a pretty uh, simpatico working relationship, obviously because he worked on the next film we're going to talk about uh, shortly, and uh, it, that he wanted someone who who didn't require reams and reams of dialogue. Although she did, as you say, she had to memorize 20 pages of Polish uh, from this film, which is also, you know, something of an achievement. But, but, but here, uh, you know, he, he handpicked her for the role because she was perfect for it. And, uh, you know, she really, uh, she really excels here. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's talk about Blood Ties, which is a film that uh, Gray co-wrote with the director, Guillaume Canet. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He's the French actor and filmmaker. He directed the excellent French thriller, Tell No One, which is a film I really like. Um, As an actor, I know him from movies like The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, Now he was previously, and this is a little personal trivia about this actor and this director, he was previously married to Diane Kruger, but now he's partner with Marion Cotillard and they have a couple kids together and work together a number of times. Now here is a film from 20 13 blood ties that is it is just uh up and down exactly the kind of movie i think i would be engaged by i think this is right up your alley yeah. steven it's a 1970s crime drama deeply indebted to scorsese and pacula and those great american filmmakers who did gangster movies from the era we get needle drops with cream and lou reed we got all the lapels and those new york locations and the old cars and it's the most star-studded cast i've ever seen gathered a movie that I've never heard of until this, like, two weeks ago. I just couldn't believe that so many remarkable performers were gathered together in this film, and I had completely off slipped off my radar, and, you know, I pay attention to movies, so um, I'm surprised. So, anyway, um, so, <laughs> which, which all <laughs> which brings us, to, us the, to. The, to the point that maybe it's not that awesome, but I really struggle to understand what, why it doesn't, why it feels kind of rote, uh, despite the fact that there's a lot about it that I liked, uh, you know, okay, so let's go with that cast to start with. Clive Owen is Chris, 
who is the bad news, news brother who just got out of jail. Billy Crudup is Frank the cop brother. That's that the main relationship between these two brothers in the film. Their sick father is played by James Kahn. Chris's ex-wife is played by Cote Yard. She's been spending the past 10 years raising the kids, and she wants child support. Zoe Saldana is Frank's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Vanessa. Vanessa's ex gets thrown into prison. He's played by Matthias Schonartz, who's also a great actor. And that's not even the end of it. Lily Taylor plays their sister. Mila Kunis plays Chris's new fiance. Other character actors on the scene include Griffin Dunn, Noah Emmerich, Dominic Lombardozzi, and John Ventimiglia. I mean, these are really solid, solid performers, which brings us back to why isn't this working? Why does it feel like a weird carbon copy of the better films that it's inspired by? Is it the writing? I mean, we get some great scenes. We get a lot of conflict, some intense violence. The characters are vivid. The angry, warring brothers especially. There's a compelling core to the story. And I even liked how it ended. But I don't know if I'd recommend it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I went into this thinking this has got all the elements of something that I'm pretty sure I'm going to enjoy. And uh, and I don't know. There's There's... There's something missing at the heart of this film that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Maybe it is missing a heart. I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I mean, or, or another vital organ, possibly. I mean, a little more spleen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we've, we've got you know, it's it's the classic you know, brothers on opposite sides of the law. I mean, that's that's a story we've seen over and over again, and and uh, it usually works on some level, whether it's you know, Cagney and Humphrey Bogart and you know, Angels with Dirty Faces or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, it, maybe because Clive Owen is so cold-hearted and calculating, it's it's hard to drum up a whole lot. Like I think you're supposed to feel some sympathy for him, but he he really doubles down on on the on the just the the vicious um, cruelty yeah. aspect of that character. Oh, and with like in Croupier, he never you never really warm up to him. I, I find that Owen, although he's a great actor, it's hard sometimes to find warmth from him. But he doesn't do warmth well. No. Uh, yet he's, he's an actor I find appealing, but uh, I don't know what it is about uh, about his character here. And, 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 you know, Billy's constant attempts to kind of redeem him or, or you know, at least uh, keep him out of harm's way when it's clear that <laughs> that is an impossible mission. And uh, but, you know, he, you know, there's that debt to family, I guess, that that, uh, you know, keeps him uh, walking that line when he should definitely cut him loose and uh it's and i i get the feeling that there's probably there could have been like an hour of storyline that was probably cut out of this film i get the i always always have the sense of missing scenes or missing substance or or something like marion cotillard uh i find she's great in her scenes uh but i find that uh she kind of her character gets a little bit of short shrift and i feel like there's more going on with her that than meets the eye and that we should, you know, that, that she does stuff later on in the film that seems to lack context, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And whether or not it's her addictions, it's a little unclear how she, I mean, she sort of changes her mind on some things and it's, yeah, it's hard to know there. And, and, and maybe it's just that it feels so indebted to Scorsese without Scorsese's iron grip on story. Uh, I feel like if Kenneth had, it's maybe it's something about his French sensibilities, like and no offense to you know, there's a lot of great French crime movies. But if he had decided to set it in Paris and worked with a French cast, I wonder if it would have been an entirely better film. Yeah, there's nothing about it that needs to be set in the '70s necessarily. It could, it could take place at any time, and you know, another example of of 
where I think things went missing. Like Jamie Hector from The Wire, uh, you know, shows up and as as one of the cops and yet barely has any dialogue. You just kind of see him standing in a doorway or, you know, running with a gun or whatever. And you're kind of like, why would you get a guy like that if you're not going to use him? Especially because I just watched all of the series of Bosch where he is so good as uh, as Bosch's partner, Jay Edgar. Uh, and he's so good there that... Um, you know, I was kind of like, well, why would he be here in kind of such a nothing part unless most of it had fallen on the cutting room floor? Mm. And and I feel like Cody Art's character must have fallen in the same fate because I feel like she had more to do and more involvement in the lives of of, of these two uh, warring brothers. But um, unfortunately, <laughs> there probably won't be a director's cut of this anytime soon. Yeah, so. yeah, no, I feel you. And I also think, um, you know, the ending, although I liked it, it reminded me so much of Carlito's way. It's just like this, it's like beat for beat. It felt like the end of Carlito's way. So anyway, again, it, 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 it reminded me of better films and it didn't bring enough that was new. Um, now, before we finish up this segment here on Lens Me Your Ears, there's one more film we want to talk about briefly, at least, called Ismail's Ghosts from 2017. It's from renowned French director Arnaud Desplechin, who, uh, again, excuse my pronunciation, but he's a filmmaker. I've seen some of his work. My Golden Days particularly was wonderful. He is one of his favorite actors is Mathieu Almeric, uh, who, of course, is a big uh, movie star in France. He's in this as well, and it's a two-pronged story of a widowed filmmaker and his personal problems, his relationship with his girlfriend, his relationship with his dead wife's father, and then out of the blue, his dead wife, she reappears. And with all this going on, we get snippets of the film that he's directing. It's about his younger brother, Ivan Daedalus, who was a spy who also disappeared. Um... And this is a kind of film I felt like if it was in English, you wouldn't believe a word of it. <laughs> it would be a comedy because it was so outrageously melodramatic that it's but it's played so seriously in a French film where where melodrama is not a bad word, right? There's a French melodrama. They do it so well. And there's been lots of French melodramas I've really liked. But this one um, is just so wildly over the top. It's so difficult to take seriously that I just found it. I found myself rolling my eyes half yes. the time over yes. the, the scenes. Yeah. It's like three or four different movies happening at once. And I think it maybe if he kept himself to two happening at once <laughs> that, that might've, uh, that might've been easier to hold together. But, uh, cause I, you know, it, it had me like, I was enjoying the movie within the movie. Uh, I enjoyed the predicament of, uh, the wife who had vanished without a trace reappearing. Uh -huh. Um, uh, you know, I liked the kind of uneasy attempt at camaraderie between, um, you know, between Cotillard, the the vanished wife, and Gainsbourg, the 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 new love in the director's life, and uh, you know, I, I like their their scenes together. I thought they were great. Uh, and then uh, when, but then, you know, when when the director's life kind of falls apart, the movie kind of does too. And uh, and then you you've got um, you know you've you've got Carlotta, uh, the the formerly dead wife kind of you know attempting to reconnect with her father uh later in the film which feels like a completely kind of disconnected bit of storyline that doesn't really mesh with the the earlier stuff and uh and it's yeah it's it's just hard to all fit it all together and it feels like uh a bit loose and i think it had like three or four different screenwriters i guess working on it trying to, i guess trying to make the puzzles all fit together and they really don't yeah, no, I I knew that I was going to have trouble with it about the third of the way in when uh, 
when Cotillard starts to dance to Bob Dylan's It Ain't Me, Babe in this like herky-jerky style. <laughs> and I was just like, what, what, as if anyone could dance to that song. It's just, it just made, yeah, it not, made yeah, no Yeah, I thought it was an odd choice me. for a dance number. And I just was like, you know, these actors are good and they do have great moments together. But when um, Almerick starts to yell and scream and carry on on the beach and I just was like, I don't know if I want to go on the journey with these characters because I just don't know if I buy it. It all just seems so uh, – when melodrama goes sour, you know, that's when it's, it is really hard. It feels wildly indulgent, and I'm afraid that's where I was at with this as much as I wanted to like it and especially given, given the performers. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. All right, so now we're back. Lends me your ears. Uh, we're talking about the career of Marion Cotillard, the dazzling French actor, uh, and uh, watching a few of her films that we haven't seen or haven't seen in a long time here on Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, this next one was maybe the most impressive of the bunch. And that's saying something because there are a lot of good movies here. Uh, two Days and One Night. Uh, or should I say two days, one night, no and. Uh, comma. Comma, one, one night, night uh, from 2014, written and directed by the Belgian filmmakers Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne, uh, otherwise known as the Dardenne Brothers, a, a filmmakers who I know mostly by reputation. I don't know if I've actually watched any of their other films, but he, they've had quite a career, an award-winning filmmaking duo, brother duo. Uh Cotillard was nominated for a series of awards for this film, she, including Best Actress Oscar. In the film, she's Sandra, a woman who works at a solar panel factory in Liège, Belgium. She's been off work managing uh, mental illness challenges, but when she goes back to work, she learns that the company plans to make her redundant, provided her co-workers agree to working a bit more, they'll be paid a bonus of a thousand euros. There's a vote. And a manager at the uh, at the company encouraged them all to vote to take the bonus, and they'll make her redundant. But and all but two of her coworkers agree to take the bonus. But a woman at work advocates for her, so the owner of the company agrees to a second vote. Uh, um, you know, uh, on the Monday morning. So basically, the two days, one night. She has two days to convince sixteen coworkers to, or enough of them to vote for her to keep her so she can keep her job and give up their bonus. Uh, so the secret ballot will be Monday morning. So basically that's it. That's the story. That's the movie. I mean, it's hard to imagine that being enough for a film, but it is shockingly well-observed and moving. Uh, I mean, the character Sandra, she's married with two young kids. She really needs the job or, or she and her family have to go back to subsidize housing. So, yeah, the next 90 minutes are basically her spending her time making the case for herself with a group of people, some of whom are friends, some of whom are barely acquaintances. And with each one of them, she has a little human moment. Uh, there, many of them are not without empathy for her for her situation, but they just can't give up the bonus. The po it's a sort of the poison of capitalism. They're all living at the poverty line. There's one who feels guilty for having taken the bonus originally. 
but um, he says he'll give it up for her. But almost everyone she talks to asks what the others are doing because they <laughs> they're not sure what whether it's worth it for them. And it's almost like if they want to be they almost want to be more part of the group and make the group decision that that more people are doing than than feel comfortable being the outlier, the you know the one who doesn't do what everyone else is doing. It's 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 got a rawness this film and her her she is the central nerve cotillard in it uh she's mid to close up for most of the whole movie and she's very thin i think her her clavicle tells its own story her emotions are so close to the surface and even though we only spend that you know this time with her there's so much of her life that is so difficult we really get sense of it but we also get sense of moments of domestic joy or maybe just domestic tedium but Wow, it's it was it was really moving. I was so touched by the film. Yeah, this uh, film—it's such a basic premise, and yet it packs so much into ninety-five minutes. It's it really goes by quickly. Uh, it, it's it's so compelling, and she's so wonderful uh, as as Sandra, who's on this basically mission to save, you know, to save her own life, essentially, <laughs> you know, over the course of this weekend. And uh, it, it's—I uh, mean, her performance is—she's—it's it's never overdone. You know, there there are no big histrionic uh, moments. You know, there's no, you know, Norma Ray <laughs> kind of uh, uh, big uh, displays of, uh, of 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 emotion or, or you <laughs> hey, know, hey, obviously Sally Field. Come on, uh, Sally Field. Props for fine. Sally Field. <laughs> I don't mean to demean Sally Field, but but you know, they don't go for the you know, it's like obviously cinematic moments. Basically, you know, the the the, the um. The the Darden brothers, uh, you know, they, they seem to be very much filmmakers in, in the humanist mode. That, that that they're very interested in the human condition and, and real human stories, and that's what we get here. But but you know, still managing to tug at the heartstrings in in so many different ways. And you know, like I mean, she's got kids, but they never use the kids as emotional uh, you know ballast in the story. You're aware of them, you're aware of her love for them, but they're not used as as tools for your. Um, for your compassion or empathy at all over the course of the film. And, uh, you know, they don't do anything in a kind of an obvious or, um, you know, cloying kind of way, which I could see happening if, uh, you know, maybe if it was made by an American filmmaker or, 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 you know, an English language filmmaker might try to tug more obviously at the heartstrings, whereas, the, you know, the situation it should be enough. And uh, especially when we so matter-of-factly learn the situations that her uh, her fellow employees are in and, uh, you know, that, that they're in desperate straits too. I mean, you know, the, the one, the guy who's, who's uh, an immigrant who's only a contract worker and he's so worried that, uh, you know, that the foreman who everyone, the foreman is like this monster. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone talks about him like he's this horrible beast that they, that that uh, that looms over them at work and and we don't see him until like almost the very last scene of the film and and everyone is so afraid of him and that he has some sort of spidey sense that he can tell how people have voted even though it's going to be a secret ballot he's going to know who voted what way you know whether they say so or not and it's you know that that adds this extra level of menace that that uh, and anticipation for what's going to happen at the end of the film and uh, you know i just love the way they they wove that into the story and and it's full of surprises every 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 encounter with with an employee is, is with a, with a co-worker is, is a real surprise and a real 
kind of emotional uh, gut punch. And uh, and that's what makes this film so compelling and why it goes by so quickly. I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I would recommend to anyone listening to this who wants to watch this film, uh, wants to watch Two Days, One Night, is keep an eye on the way that the filmmakers frame the shots where she meets, where Sandra meets with her coworkers every single time. In when, the, when she and her coworker are framed in a two-shot, the filmmakers fil- figure out a way to split up the shot putting some kind of vertical line or barrier between them, whether it's a door frame or the background where the design is such where they're, they, it, it, they are intentionally isolating Sandra and keep, they, it helps to show how distant she is from every person she speaks to and how they are on their own in their decision-making. And I think it's visually really a, a treat, you know, because it just shows how much they're thinking about it. Even while most of the film is handheld, there are these choices that are being made that are really deliberate and they really help the storytelling. Um, You know, in the end, I was just taken away. I felt like the whole movie is kind of an indictment of a system where money is king and poverty makes people, you know, into monsters sometimes. Um, But also the film is is about the huge rewards of self-respect and human empathy. And I think that's what I took away from it. It's like, if you can manage to have values and stick to them, um, that you will find your way through these tough times. Um, you know, even if you you can't eat your values, I suppose. No, but Sa- Sandra really puts her dignity on the line here. And, uh, you know, at, at, and on more than one occasion in the course of the film, she, she talks about feeling like a beggar. But at the same time, she's got this family that she has to support. I mean, she, her husband and her husband's egging her on to, to fight for her job. But and meanwhile, he's working as what a waiter, a busboy. Uh-huh. You know, he's 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 not exactly necessarily pulling his weight in the relationship. And but but at the same time, you know, he does feel guilty about that. And and you know, he does feel like a fully formed character as well, even though he's kind of fading in and out of the story. Um, you know, you do feel like it's a very real marriage. I mean, there's, there's no false notes anywhere in this film. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of that's due to Codiard is at the center of it. But I think uh, the, there's a great cast, uh, you know, who really make the most of their, their moments in the, in the film. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, go and see this one or, or, or watch it on Hoopla. Hoopla. There you go. I, I, I sometimes confuse Canopy with Hoopla. I can't remember where because they're both from the library. So anyway, but yeah, they're both worthwhile. Um, so the final film, the, the few minutes that we have left here on this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, we want to talk about Macbeth from 2015. Now, I'm going to say something here, Stephen, and I'm reasonably confident that this is true. I don't think you and I will ever do an episode devoted to Shakespeare adaptations on Lens Me Your Ears. And I think it's well. because, I, yeah, never say never, right? <laughs> You've convinced me of to do episodes in the past that I never would have thought I would have done. Uh, but I'm just, I just find them really tiresome, a lot of them. They either, they're too... Re- um, we they, can just do one on Macbeth's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, the, the Scottish best, play, the Scottish play. Um, I just feel they're either they're the homage to the original. They they love the text too much, and I I find that to be sometimes tiresome. They're just not creative enough or not visual enough. And so I will say all of that while still saying the Macbeth, this version from Justin Kurtzel is the one of the most impressive I've ever seen in terms of sheer cinematic translation with the possible exception of Peter Greenaway's Prospero's books. Um, I also was a fan of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet and the couple of versions of much ado about nothing I've seen. So those are the ones I would put out there as ones I've, I very much enjoyed, but, but otherwise too often it just feels like a film play and I'm not into that. 
And that's why I, I wouldn't necessarily put myself through watching, a, you know, half a dozen or more Shakespeare adaptations. Well, I, I remember really liking the uh, Julie Taymor Titus. With oh, yeah. Anthony right. Hopkins. Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, you okay. know, certainly that one is is visually quite impressive and Hopkins, you know, is Hopkins, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. especially seeing something like a minor Hitchcock or Hitchcock, a minor, Shakespeare and Hitchcock. That's the only artist you need to know about um a minor shakespeare uh player you know one that's not necessarily well known or performed as often uh and i'm also a big fan of the warner brothers uh midsummer night's dream with uh james cagney as bottom and uh mickey rooney as puck oh my gosh i've never seen that one it's it's fun it's fun to see sort of like old school hollywood collide with shakespeare and midsummer night's dream is probably you know maybe this side of romeo and juliet maybe his most accessible play because it is you know it's a fantasy and there's comedy and you know that you can really do a lot visually with it as well and i i really i really like that uh that version of it but but um but here they they really do pull out all the stops visually you know with uh with this uh portrayal of of uh, macbeth and lady macbeth's uh you know cold-hearted ambition and and uh and uh, rise to power and subsequent um defeat but uh you know by filming i think they filmed on location in scotland which i don't think uh, often happens with uh-huh. uh with this uh with this particular work and uh, you know a lot of it's done in in the outdoors uh with a lot of smoke and and just really imaginative lighting and color schemes and and a lot of blood um but it is it's a pretty bloody play and uh, you know and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of fake blood on stage at the globe uh you know was it 600 odd years ago but uh this this really is is a feast for the eyes and also what extremely well cast across the board i thought uh, in terms of uh, yeah. who they have in it yeah i mean cody yard i mean let's just she's wonderful as lady macbeth uh you know she bring to life not i mean i i think that that character tends to be sort of an ambitious mad woman but She's more like someone grieving deeply for the death of her child, and I feel like that grief and that pain is something that is a different for the character. It really it changed the way I thought about the character, having watched her in, uh, you know, in this. Um, yeah, and, she's a uh, lot more grounded, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and Michael Fassbender also is like just, you know, that there's sort of, it's funny, he sort of stepped away from leading roles lately. I'm sure he'll be back, but uh, we haven't seen him in a while. But but there was a stretch there where he was making a lot of really interesting choices in interesting films, and this is certainly one of them. Um, I, I love the way they use the color red in the film as you're kind of traveling into hell. Um, that All of that really, really impressed me um but uh yeah i mean it sounds like Stephen, you've probably seen more uh shakespeare adaptations than i have and you mentioned you know wanting to do a whole episode of <laughs> macbeth or the scottish play what, uh, how does this rack up do you think pretty well because uh, you know a, a big part of it is how well does it make the text come alive and uh make it clear and i think it does a lot uh you know, through the visuals, um, through the power of this cast, and and how they're how how they get to portray the characters, I, I find that it does a, a really good job of putting the story across. Because sometimes you get lost in the poetry of the language, and uh, if it's not underlined by what you're seeing, uh, it, you can get kind of lost in it and lose your place. And I find that this uh, because there's you know there's certainly a lot going on with all the different alliances and betrayals and and so on. And uh, I mean, I read Macbeth 
just out of curiosity when I was in high school, I just I, I got this thing where I start, wanted to read Shakespeare and try to make sense of it. And th- this and The Tempest, I think, were the two plays that I, I remember reading just completely on my own, uh, with a, not as an assignment, but but because I was curious. And uh, so, you know, I've certainly always had a fondness for this work. But I've but but the clarity of uh, vision in the storytelling here is 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 really what makes this uh, succeed so well. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm with you there. I was just thinking about other Shakespeare adaptations. Richard III with uh, Ian McKellen. That's, yes. That's pretty great. That was a good one. Uh, yeah. Henry V, the, the Kenneth Branagh. Oh, yes. Henry V yeah. is, is very good. You know what? You, we, as we talk about this, I can just see <laughs> we're going to end up doing this, aren't we? At some um, point, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a bunch of them I want to revisit. And you know, I, I don't know if there are any new ones coming down the pipe, but maybe if there's a big, splashy Shakespeare thing happening, we, we can look at that. Welcome to our planning meeting, folks. So that's been Lensmere Ears, another episode. Uh, we, we talked about Marion Cotillard and her incredible career. There were so many other movies we could have talked about. Uh, we missed an opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, The Rise of the Dark Knight and her, her villainous part in, in that film. I guess maybe maybe when we... Uh, when maybe the, you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> enough times and maybe we don't need to talk about it. That's fair. Though, you know, when the Batman opens, maybe we'll go back and watch some more Batman movies. Uh, but it has been, been a real joy to watch some of these uh, Marion Cotillard films for the first time and uh, yes go and see, check out Annette I, I I agree that it's it's one that will polarize people but I, I'm so glad I got to see it now lends me your ears uh, we are on social media you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter and uh, Stephen you and I have our own Twitter accounts mine is named after my my film blog Flaw on the Iris and I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E yeah, and uh, you're Stephen Cook. I'm Carson Knox. Thank you so much for listening to Lens Me Your Ears. We want to also thank uh, CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And many, many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. All right, we'll talk about movies again another day. Thank you again, and talk to you soon. And au revoir. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.